This is the Positive Psychology Podcast, episode 117. Welcome to the Positive Psychology Podcast, bringing your earbuds the science of the good life. And now your host, Kristen Trumpy. Today, we're welcoming Guy Winch to the podcast. He is the author of Emotional First Aid. Hello, Guy. Can you introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Guy Winch. I'm a psychologist and a speaker and an author of a few books. Uh, one of them is Emotional First Aid. And I'm, uh, I live and practice in New York City. Right. So emotional first aid is a great term. Can you define what exactly it means? Yes, we we have a basic knowledge about how to deal with common physical wounds, which we really lack in the psychological realm. And so when we get a cut on our arm, say, uh, we actually, most of us, can tell Mm, that just needs a bandage, or ooh, that might need a stitch, or I'm going to get to the emergency room right now. We can even distinguish between the severity of the wounds we sustain. When it comes to emotional wounds, and I'm talking about common wounds like rejection or failure or loneliness or guilt, then we are often uh, not only unaware that we are uh, injured in some kind of way, we are very much unaware of what approaches we might take to soothe the emotional pain, to accelerate our recovery, to make sure things don't get worse. And there's a whole whole science out there about these kinds of things. And so I uh, put uh, a lot of these studies together in this book, Emotional First Aid, and in the uh, speaking that I do, to bring to people's attentions that when they experience common emotional injuries on a daily basis, there are actual steps they can take that will make them feel better and that will be useful for their psychological health and their emotional resilience. Before we get into the steps, can we think um, Can we think about this? So I think, I mean, I'm not sure, but I think around between maybe 10 and 12, I probably had about the knowledge of what can you do um, with wounds in general, I mean, of course, some of them are simple. You, you just you learn the band-aid thing, maybe also when you're six. But do you think that these things could be simply taught in school to even small children? First of all, absolutely. And secondly, wow, I really wish they were. It's something I talk about all the time that we have this captive audience of children. And, you know, uh, adolescents and young adults, in a way, until they're 17, 18 years old. And we teach them all these things that are fine, but they're not going to use. You know, no one's going to use, well, very few people are going to use, you know, logarithms in in life. And yet we're not teaching them life. That's kind of what we should be teaching. And so absolutely these things can be taught to children, should be taught to children. And unfortunately, because they're not, they now need to be taught to adults as well. All right, so um, teachers in the audience, listen up. Uh, Parents in the audience, listen up. And, yeah, think about this also for your kids um, and kids you're responsible for and not just yourself. So um, one of the common everyday hurts that you describe, you describe, I'm not sure, was it seven or six? Seven. Yes. Yes. So first of all, can you just tell us 
really quickly a few of those, which ones you include as common everyday hurts? Yeah, now look, I mean, I could have included, you know, 20, but publishers like uh, numbers like seven, so uh, <laughs> I chose seven. But I'm just going to like, just I'm going to use an example of a, maybe two of the most common ones, um, uh, failure and rejection. And I'm going to give two quick examples about how this works and why um, it would be really good to have this in school. So rejection, for example, very common experience, you know, a kid comes home from school, oh, I was bullied, I was rejected, I found out I wasn't invited to the party, uh, you know, my friends wouldn't sit next to me at lunch. So this experience of rejection um, is a very, very common one in life, but certainly in school and in certainly things like middle grade, you know, uh, the, those pre-adolescent, early adolescent years are extraordinarily tough, especially for girls. Rejection is a big, a big part of it. Now, what most parents will say when their kid comes home and says, oh, you know, the kids made fun of me, kids didn't like me, is what a lot of parents will say is, oh, you know, it doesn't matter what other people think. Now, it's an absolutely the wrong thing to say to the child. Because first of all, it does matter what other people think, not in the theoretical aspect of it, but in the fact that we know from countless, countless rejection experiments that when you get rejected by people you actually despise, it still hurts. Rejection is so hardwired into our brains that even getting rejection from people we would not want to affiliate with in the first place actually elicits significant emotional pain. So telling a kid they shouldn't feel hurt when they do is making them feel doubly bad because now not only they still feel hurt, but now they feel like a loser or there's something wrong with them that if it's not supposed to matter, why am I in pain about it? So that's the wrong thing to say. The right thing to say, or to do rather, would be to say, uh, look, you know what? Um, French friends and people um, are like locks and keys. Not everyone goes together. But I know you have a couple of friends who really do like you. Let's invite them over tonight for some pizza. Let's invite them over right now for a play date. Because to me, it's more important in that moment to remind that child that they are appreciated, that they are people who like them, who see them for who they are and appreciate them. There are those who consider them friends with whom they're affiliated. That will do much more to restabilize the kid than tell them to just shrug off something that is painful for them. Can you say that pretty much everybody is okay or are there some specifically hardwired, you know, people who are specifically, let's say, prone to rejection who need way more interventions or what can you talk to um, about that? So it's it's two different things, actually. One is that they are, there are some people who are more sensitive to rejection, but it's also the context of um, the uh, rejection and of the situation, because that's going to have different meaning for different people. You know, someone who is, um, you know, very outgoing, very popular, um, you know, uh, and, and gets rejected will be able to shrug that off, perhaps, uh, you know, much more easily than someone who uh, rarely reaches out and here on the one occasion they do, they're getting rebuffed. The person who goes to, uh, who swipe on a dating app a uh, hundred times a day saying, yeah, I want this one, this one, this one, this one, this one, is going to be much less, 
you know, bothered by the fact that 95 of those people didn't respond than a person who's on these apps and is having a hard time, you know, uh, having the, the gumption to, to contact someone and then they reach out to the one person that they really think might be a good fit and they don't respond, right? So the context makes a big difference here. And the context of our lives makes a big difference. And we have, um, and self-esteem makes a big difference. And self-esteem fluctuates. It's like, it's like hair days. You can have good hair days and bad hair days. You can wake up one morning feeling great and one morning feeling crappy about yourself. But what, and in the days you feel crappy, rejection is going to hit you deeper on, than on days in which you're feeling great. So it is so many uh, different variables there that it's really about um, what's working for you in that moment and how deep you need to go, how many different uh, emotional third aid, first aid techniques you, you need to apply. So your book goes pretty deeply into each and every one of these seven uh, that you talk about. Now, I was just wondering, um, first of all, there are a lot of people who sadly cannot afford therapy. So my feeling is that this is a pretty great um way to go if that's you however i would still be interested in hearing what you think somebody who's reasonably good at you know reading stuff and then implementing it um where do you think the therapist is still needed or do you say well you know what actually you don't if the, what are your thoughts when it comes to that so i in every chapter i lay out at the end of the chapter here's when you should actually consider seeing a mental health professional in other words, what I'm saying in this book, and I call it emotional first aid, um, you know, in the same way that we have a first aid kit in our homes, and we know when to use that versus when we're spiking a really bad fever for a long time and eh, not so much a case for a pain reliever anymore, time to go to the doctor. Um, I, I specify at the end of each chapter, now, yes, if you've tried these things, but this is how you're feeling or this is what's going on, that is when you might want to consider um, seeing a mental health professional. But the numbers, and I, I, I'm not sure, I don't recall exactly what they are, but, but the percent of people who have access, uh, who have the, the access and the ability to see an actual mental health professional is abysmal. I mean, it's low, single-digit percent, you know, percentage-wise. In other words, very, very few people um, have that privilege. So the vast, vast majority of people don't have access, don't have ability, can't afford it, don't have them around. And what about them? So for them, and even for those who do have therapists, because you know many therapists are not necessarily informed of this research either, unfortunately, so they won't know about some of these important things. Um, so I think it's a good starting point. And I, um, I am careful to say this is not a panacea. This is not, you know, the the only thing you will need. But start here. See what you can do for yourself, and then if things really persist, get worse, etc. By all means, um, seek help. Okay. So one of the things I saw was that you refer to self-esteem as the emotional immune system, and I found that very intriguing. Now, in biology, um, not for you, just more for the benefit of our listeners, there is such a thing as an innate. Um, immune system that you get from your parents um, that's kind of already there when you're born and then the adaptive immune system that builds up as a result of the the stuff that you've been exposed to let's say you've had a bunch of viruses or you can also be exposed to things through vaccination now do you think that 
this idea of basically innate and um, adaptive also holds up in terms of the emotional immune system? Yeah, and I think that's a great question. And here's how I think it, it holds up. In other words, we each of us comes with a basic set point. In other words, we're, there's some people who just fundamentally have this robust sense of self-esteem that's almost constitutional. And there's some people who are just more fragile um, in their self-esteem, like people with a tendency towards narcissism, that is also constitutional. So you can take that. But on top of that, there is the adaptive part. You can do things to build your sense of self-esteem and emotional resilience. You can address it. You can beef it up. And you can do that literally in the moment when you need to do it. You can do it in general. So there, So I think it very much holds in the sense of, yeah, we all come with a certain basic uh, emotional resilience and, and sense of self-esteem, but it is something that we can um, strengthen and beef up with certain exercises, certain thought exercises, writing exercises, um, and, and certain experiences that we, can, that we can really give ourselves a boost. All right. So I understood the book to address mainly individuals, but considering that we are going through some pretty turbulent times also um, in terms of politics and stuff like that, I was wondering... Have you ever thought about these ideas in a larger context? Um, so, for example, in companies, organizations, or even nations? So, um, I do a lot of speaking to um, companies, um, I, uh, and I do consulting uh, with companies. Emotional distress impacts our thinking, because we have a finite amount of intellectual resources, and emotional distress occupies a, a, a significant portion of our operating uh, system memory, as it were, leaving much less left over with which to function at our jobs, to think creatively, to, to problem solve, etc. So there's a big impact on our, on our general um, functioning that we need to consider um, by not doing these things. Somebody who's, for example, having a lot of guilty feelings because they just find themselves in a meeting on their anniversary, and then they suddenly sit in the meeting going like, oops, didn't get an anniversary gift, and they're starting to feel really guilty, they're not going to be that focused on the meeting, because every five minutes they'll be like, oh, God, I really have to remember to get the gift, I have to remember to get the gift. Um, you know, so, so there's a lot of uh, impact that can uh, be had. For example, we know that when you fail at a certain task, you are in the next task you do, much less likely to think creatively, because creative thinking out of the box um, thinking is opposed to uh, uh, a, a position of being risk averse. When you're risk averse, you're more conservative. So even just to know that when you fail at a small task, you're not going to be at your best creatively unless you address that in some way. These are all small and they're very large ways also in which our functioning in the workplace um, you know, can, be, can be impacted and is impacted by uh, these common emotional wounds and by our emotional health. Now, in terms of nations, um, uh, it's, I mean, I have a lot to say about that, a lot to say about the leadership of certain nations, perhaps my own, but um, it's not, um, you know, it, it's not uh, useful, uh, it's not something psychologists are uh, expected to do, is to comment on, on um, the psychology of, of leadership. 
Um, but I can say in general that when I look at the media, I'm in the U.S., when I look at the media in the news and there is a lot of discussion of someone's mental fitness, um, of someone's mental preparation, um, of all kinds of psychological aspects, the one person you will never see interviewed is a psychologist. And that's just appalling to my mind. Um, there is this huge bias against, you know, like you can talk about all these things, the words narcissism are bandied about and, and, and sociopathy and all these different things. And there's never an interview with a psychologist. The psychologist doesn't have to comment on a specific person, but they can comment on a phenomena. They can do some basic education for the public. And you just never see them being interviewed, and I think this is true internationally as well. So um, to me, that's very unfortunate that psychology is marginalized in that way and not considered important enough to bring in that perspective on literally every important issue of the day. For example, climate change. There's a, a huge body of, of knowledge that's being, not huge yet, but, but like a, a growing body of knowledge that's being amassed about how people respond emotionally to the threat of climate change, why it's so hard for people to embrace, why young people especially might have a hard time wrapping their minds around it and, and realizing that it's you know the issue for them much more than it is for someone who's in their 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, there's a lot of psychology behind that. Don't hear psychologists talking about it. So to me, there's a whole dearth and, and there's a whole absence of psychology in news in governance uh, which, in a very unfortunate way. Right. So, um, audience, if you're psychologists or you know journalists, um, try to get on that. That's, uh, that's what I can say. Now, I was thinking before more along the lines of, and I know that that's not exactly done a lot with psychology, but I think it should be, is this idea that, for example, can a nation be collectively guilty or struggle through um, collective self-esteem issues, which could be treated kind of similarly with how you suggest we treat it in individuals. So you know there are um, there are in I'm trying to remember what country this was. There's a, a country that just nominated a minister in charge of loneliness because of the loneliness epidemic, um, and I think. Um, Scotland, for example, is now extraordinarily, the first minister of Scotland is extraordinarily focused on the well-being of um, the citizenship, psychologically, emotionally. Um, there is a movement in, uh, you know, in, in among leaders of, of countries to, and the movement is among a few of them, but to replace GDP, gross domestic product, as an indicator of a country's, um, uh, you know, health uh, economically, with the well-being of the citizenship, um, and so we're, we're starting to see, in recent years, a bit of a movement um, towards those that kind of thinking. Um, does anything really yet trickle down to the citizenship per se, or? To policy, I don't know, but hopefully that's the direction we're going in. All right. So we talked quite a bit. We touched on a few ideas around emotional first aid. Is there anything that you feel we didn't talk about just yet that you think is important? Yeah. So I wanted to bring up one of example. I said earlier I'll talk about rejection and failure. I want to bring up failure. 
So, you know, uh, kids go to school, uh, adults go to college, we, we have jobs, we fail all the time. Um, and we, and when we do, there's a whole suite of psychological and emotional responses we have to that experience. Um, and for many, many people, for, you know, uh, uh, 80%, according to some of the research, people fall into states of helplessness or hopelessness, demotivation, and they start to feel like they can't do it. Uh, here I am failed at my 10th diet. I just, I just can't diet uh, correctly. Or the kid failed at, at, at the history test and I'm just, I'm just not good at history. And our whole concept of failure is, um, is, is mistaken, really. Because in the vast majority of cases, of course there are exceptions, in the vast majority of cases, failure, the experience of failure, doesn't say much about you or your capacities. It says a little, but not a lot. What it says a whole lot about, what it says primarily, is um, about your system, about your approach, about your method. Um, when I applied to graduate schools in the US, I wanted to be in the New York area. I think there were, let's say, 15 schools in the New York area, and I'm being generous, like, you know, the, you know a few states away even. Um, and and uh, there were 14 of them that I thought I, I would go to, and one that I was like, I'm not sure this one's really a good school, but I applied to it too. And it's good that I did, because the 14 schools rejected me, and that last one uh, didn't even respond. So um, I didn't get in at all. And at first I was like, well, maybe I'm just not cut out to be a psychologist, and then I quickly realized they didn't reject me. They rejected my application. The documents, the scores, the recommendations, what I sent in, the packet is what got rejected. The packet is not me, it's what I put together. The packet can be improved. And I improved it and applied and got into a lot of schools the year after that. And it's true of our effort. It's true of our system. If a child is failing a test in school, it's not because they're stupid, it's because they didn't study correctly. Their system of studying was not sufficient, and that's what needs to be changed. Their system, the feedback they need to be given is, hey, here's a sign your system's not good enough. Let's think about what in your system needs to be changed. It should not be you're lazy, or you didn't study, or you didn't... Your system wasn't great. Let's talk together about how to improve it. And that's true, you know, in life. People say, well, I can't get a promotion because my boss doesn't like me. And I'm like, if your boss doesn't like you, then your goal going forward should be, how do I change my relationship with my boss? Not, oh, I'll never get a promotion. So failure is something we really need to understand as our initial response to it are going to feel paralyzing and demoralizing. But we need to really reframe the experience as, I can, from this, learn something extraordinarily valuable about my system, my effort, my preparation, my planning, my execution, any aspect of the task that, that, that I can improve. And once I know what those things are that I can do better, that demoralization, those feelings of hopelessness and helplessness will diminish significantly because we now know we can approach this differently. Right. I, I love this. And I, I would like to actually end with this idea because apparently the stuff at the end sticks with people the most. So, Guy, where can people find you and your work? Um, my website is guywinch.com, G-U-Y-W-I-N-C-H.com. I'm actually working on a website slight redesign, so it 
I'm not sure when podcast will air, but it might be the new one, it might be the old one. Um, but there's information there. You can have see links to my two TED Talks. Um, you can find links to my books. My books are in 26 languages, so um, it's it might certainly be in whatever language you speak, and if not, then it might be in your local bookstore or library. Um, and you can also find links to my Psychology Today uh, blog uh, on my bio. You'll find links to that. And I can let you know that upcoming I am going to hopefully be launching an advice column soon. I can't say for which publication because that still hasn't been announced. But, uh, you know, by the end of the year, hopefully, um, or early next year at latest, um, I will have a an advice column and then people can actually write in and ask me questions and hopefully they'll make their letters um, interesting and entertaining and I will choose them uh, and respond. I hope they make a podcast out of the column, by the way. That's another thing that might be in the works, which is mm-hmm. quite announced yet, but, but there might be that kind okay. of thing as cool, well. Cool. All right, guys. And all those you. updates will be on my website, so that's the best uh, best place to find them. All right, perfect. One-stop shop, guywinch.com. Thank you very much, Guy. Thank you so much, and thank you very much to your listeners. Okay, so it took me quite a while to publish this episode. And in the meantime, it has been announced that Guy will do his advice column for TED.com, which are known for TED Talks. So if you'd like to answer, if you'd like Guy to answer one of your questions, you can write to dearguy at TED.com. Let me know if you do. It would be fun. All right, so if you haven't listened to the previous episode yet, you might not know that I started a section of the podcast that focuses on improving society. I'll call it Spotlighting Solutions. So today I want to talk to you about an organization called Represent.us. So Represent.us, for or US, of course, um, quote, brings together conservatives, progressives, and everyone in between to pass powerful anti-corruption laws that stop political bribery and secret money and fix our broken election. And it's a U.S. organization. And the reason that I'm bringing them up is that joining in their fight is actually one of the most important things you can do, no matter what you think the most pressing issues of our times are. And here's why. Politicians won't act on, say, climate change as long as they take money from fossil fuel lobbyists. Politicians won't look out for the well-being of soldiers, army families, and veterans if someone bribes them to send the vast military budget elsewhere. Uh, Politicians won't help families in rural places wrecked by opiate addiction because the pharma folks got there first. And if you think that everything is too far gone already, everything is too messed up and there's no point, um, and the only hope is focusing on the presidential election in uh, in November 2020, which is this year, I don't have to say 2020 anymore, I want you to know that in recent months, there have been a lot of gerrymandering and lots of voter protection laws have been passed. And the reason you don't necessarily know about it is that there's just so much so much bad shit stuff going on that that has not really been reported. But if you follow someone like Represent Us um, and similar organizations on social media, you will know that there are 
tons, there are dozens, hundreds, thousands of victories that need to happen for the big victories to happen. So Represent US has advisors and support from the most progressive two Tea Party conservatives. Today, go to represent.us and watch the introduction video on the homepage. Um, if Michael Douglas is not your cup of tea, you can also go to YouTube and just look for Jennifer Lawrence explaining exactly the same thing to you. Pause this podcast and do it right now, like actually now. I'll wait. Okay, welcome back. If you actually took action, thank you so, so much. If you didn't, well, um, get into the habit of taking action. All the stuff that I tell you otherwise is useless if you don't do anything about it. Okay, so here are a couple of reviews. Um, one from Miss Kitty 2702 from the USA, and it says, Easy to understand, relate, and apply to everyday life. I needed some positive motivation and encouragement, and Kristen hit the nail on the head. Very informative, yet fun to listen to as well. I'm glad I came across this podcast. Miss Kitty 2702, um, I hope you're still listening. I know it took me a a while to get to your review. Thank you so much, and I'm particularly pleased about the fun part. (laughs) Then there's a review from Smallville 0884 from Australia. That says, love your work, thank you so much. And I'll say just thank you to you if you're in Australia. I hope you're not in some place that has been wrecked by the fires. And if you have Smallville or any of you other listeners, um, my heart goes out to you. And I hope that we will be able to rebuild, we, well, you will be able to rebuild your country and kind of repopulate it and get the get get like the the ecosphere and everything going again and have the animals hopefully return and the plants grow back and everything because that was truly horrific and then we'll close with a review from vincenzo who's also from australia who said wonderful fascinating and useful i started listening to find out more about positive psychology in no time i found myself binge listening to all the episodes from the starts i looked forward to your company on my daily commute. Now I'm going back to some episode to try some techniques. Thank you so much for all the time you put into this. It's fascinating and has given me so many practical tips to feel good and make life more enjoyable. You're a star. Thanks again. Vincenzo, right back at you. You're a star and all you and all the other, well, first of all, binge listeners, but then the people who actually use the techniques, who who sometimes re-listen to episodes so that they can focus more on the applied stuff and actually do things. You're really the reason why I love to do this so much. And Vincenzo, thanks so much for reaching out. Um, I see you're also from Australia. It doesn't say where. Um, and yeah, same for you and Smallville and all my listeners from Australia. I really hope things can will improve and that we can make sure that your, your, basically your country can heal again. And it's not just heal from the fire and the damage of the fire, although I would imagine that would be quite a lot. But I think also a lot of other issues of um, responding to the fires and how supported you feel politically. And yeah, I, I just hope things will improve. That's all I can say. Okay, so 
talk to you soon. Um, folks in the U.S., don't forget to vote. The primaries are super, super important. And it's not just about what's happening in November. What's happening now actually sets the stage for November. We know from um, previous years that depending on who who gets to be in there, some people will actually stay at home in November. So go out, support your candidate, whoever it is, and help others. I think that's maybe the most important thing, help others to get registered to vote. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help us out by sharing it with your network and leaving a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher. We would love to hear from you at kristen at strengthphoenix.com. For show notes and more, head over to www.strengthphoenix.com. Thanks for listening to the Positive Psychology Podcast. We're saying goodbye with Happy Yogurt.